Welcome back to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast, Season 2, baby. This is your host, DBT Steph, and I'm so excited to continue sharing and uncovering the many layers of the physical therapy profession so that you can be the best clinician you want to be. tuning in to another episode of season two of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Physical Therapy, Carmen Fowler. To get us started, Carmen, why don't you give us a little introduction and tell us about yourself? Thanks for inviting me on, Steph, and I'm excited to talk to you guys. Uh, Like she said, I'm Cameron. I'm a physical therapist in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I graduated from Grand Valley State in 2018, four years out. I uh, started off in a private practice where I worked my way up to about a management position two years out, ended up uh, doing a little bit of a pivot shift, which we can talk about maybe later, and explored the world of home health for a little bit, and then finally found myself in this predicament where I have a very unique situation. I'm the director of operations of a parent company that basically oversees three different companies. There's a clinical side which is dynamic movement and recovery. It's the PT side. There is an educational and research side called dynamic principles. Uh, We perform a lot of different um, continuing education courses for clinicians and interdisciplinary care, as well as do a lot of research regarding the framework we use. And then I also run and operate a rehab technology solutions company called dynamic movement frameworks. And we sell a patented uh, body weight unloading technology. So pretty busy and and we can obviously get into the weeds of that. I'm just like impressed about dynamic and the variety, which we're obviously we're going to get into because I think it's so unique and everyone's going to be excited to learn the kind of like the back end of everything that you're involved in. You know, I always ask people, do you think that new grad you or even two year out you in private practice think that you would end up where you are today? Yes and no. It's kind of interesting. When I was in school, I was very business driven. I knew I wanted to own and operate a business someday. I actually, in in school, I was interviewing a lot of different business owners just to figure out their trajectory. But I mean, if you ask me back in school, I was going to be that man that like took care of all the cool sports athletes and, you know, was, was the one that was working with all the high level individuals and stuff like that. But our clinic is very specific niche in chronic pain. And something that I didn't ever foresee myself going into and and something that was never really interesting, but I just became fascinated with these individuals that didn't seem to get better with traditional care and led me down to the curiosity, which ultimately made me go into the thinking of, well, what does education and research look like? And again, that's another area I didn't see myself really getting into is the research role, but I've become a big fan of just performing different research into to this very complex population and then having the clinical side to kind of supplement that and, and actually put to action what we're teaching. So yes, as far as operating businesses, no, as far as what kind of business I would operate. Right. And that's great because you already had a sense of something that you wanted to do. And then you ended up kind of, you know, as you're going on your journey, figuring out exactly, okay, well, what is it that I want specifically, or what is it that I don't want? And then you kind of piece it together from there. I want to just hop back into something that you just said about research. You know, I'm only three years out. I feel like still I'm a little new grad baby, even though I have a pandemic experience behind me. But I know a lot of new grads always wonder, well, I'd love to get into research or I'd love to, 
you know, be more involved in that side of things. So how did you get involved in that? And how do you think that other new grads or new PTs could get involved in that? That's a great question. And, you know, it's kind of funny because you talk back to some other classmates of yours and, and you look back in, in the days and when you're graduating, you're eager, you want to go conquer the world, you want to change the world, I'm going to keep up with research, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to have a, a fine family life. And then you figure out just how busy things can come at you. And, and some things got to go to the wayside and other things don't. And so there's a lot of people that, you know, they end up saying, I can barely even keep up with reading research. I just kind of follow some good people on Instagram or whatnot, just to try to stay up. But my job is pretty intense. And then when I get home, I just kind of want to relax. But I think for me, where I was working as a manager for this clinic, and I guess I would say our mindsets were a little bit different in the way we thought we should treat patients. And, and we can get into this as I talk about a little bit of the transition, but Needless to say is that the way I viewed that we should kind of provide care in the way that I was providing care as a manager was different. It was incoherent. So I was battling with a lot of struggles with that. But when I was given the opportunity to work with a colleague of mine who was the one that actually started these businesses, I mean, I got to give him props. I'm the director of operations. I'm the one that kind of helps him keep the, you know, the bottom line and the lights on. But he's the one that was a visionary that truly started all this. He called me over and said, I, I want your help with a project. And getting into research is challenging in the concept. So I underestimated how much time it would take and just how much effort it would take just to go through the ropes, just to understand everything involved. Right now, we're just in the works of publishing some different case studies. We're also looking at applying for some different grant work to at least conduct studies regarding our educational program that we teach. And again, I mean, this is after hours, this is on the weekends, this is stuff that I got to take some time out of my own day, not when I'm working, to truly put efforts into to accomplish. So, I mean, I would say that it's a little bit more challenging than I imagined, but it needs to be, again, purposeful. It needs to kind of go with what your why is or kind of be meaningful enough to what you want to fight for for the profession. I think that's a great answer because it really shows how passion-driven you are and then also the people that you've networked and associated with over time also are. And I think that's something that I knew I saw as a PT student. Like, you know, there's always those kids in your class that you're like, oh, I know they're going to like make it big one day because they're so passion driven or business oriented. And you can tell where their souls really lie. And there's nothing wrong with this. So no one get me wrong. But there's a few that are just like, okay, I just want to clock out at the end of the day, go home and call it a day and then do what I got to do. So I think that obviously is a huge factor. It can definitely help kind of propel your future career as well. When it comes to the transition that you made from new grad to manager or clinic director, whatever your title was, and then to being this director of operations, what skills kind of helped you navigate this space or how did you navigate this space? One of the big reflection points for me, and this is what I would tell anyone that is a newer grad or anyone that is thinking about this, think more of who you want to be versus what you want to be. And I had a one-year, three-year, five-year plan nailed down out of grad school. This is exactly what I was going to do. This is what I wanted to be. And everything was going great. And I got in those roles. I was a clinic manager. I was a clinic director. That was part of it. I wanted to be a manager. But there was just this feeling that it wasn't fulfilling to me. And again, you can gain that title and you can gain whatever you want to be, but it necessarily wasn't who I saw myself as. And like I said, I'm very passionate with this chronic pain mix. I'm very passionate with um, making care more accessible. 
the clinical director I was um, operating for the company, we, we were a private practice in Grand Rapids. There was 10 clinics that was affiliated with this and they were affiliated with USPH, which is a little bit of a corporate overhead, which, I mean, in my opinion, when you're dealing with the legalities and a lot of the compliance and stuff, it was super reassuring knowing that I didn't have to worry about that. But just the way we would market and a lot of the messages we were providing to physicians and we didn't necessarily make it as easy or as accessible for a lot of the chronic pain patients to come in. I wanted to start a chronic pain program and just the the way I wanted to do that versus the way the company has traditionally done it was a little bit different. Not that one way is better, but again, this comes down to the fact of I was kind of losing who I wanted to be as a therapist and it kind of was losing that why of why I actually joined. Because like I said, I wanted to be that person that took care of complex cases, which I thought were going to be the high level elite athletes. But it turns out that nah, they're they're not as hard as what most people make it out to be. It seems like when you're dealing with individuals that are struggling socioeconomically or when you're dealing with people that maybe are dealing with Medicaid or whatnot, the socioeconomic factors, those are the ones that are truly the complex cases. And there is that loss of coherence between what I was supposed to do as a manager for this clinic and what I wanted to do as a therapist. So after going through a little bit of a struggles, I ended up being recruited to help run this company for dynamic movement and recovery, which was much more aligned with my beliefs, which was much more aligned with where my passion was lying. Um, the only unfortunate part was that I ran into a non-compete. So, you know, once I became a manager, I signed a non-compete. This, this was something I knew I signed. This is something that, you know, I probably could have negotiated back in the day, but I didn't. And in order for me to actually work for this clinic, I have to wait at least a year. And I would say that was a big kind of a disheartening struggle for me. It was almost like that loss of who I wanted to be because here's this job that's calling me and saying that I can do this, but here I have this barrier and this limitation. So as I navigate that non-compete, the lucky thing is, is that this company, we have the clinical research side and we have the rehab technology side. And this comes down to just communication. So you know, as I communicated with my previous employers and we, we came out with a good enough deal that I was allowed to at least run the research and education side and I was allowed to run the rehab technology side, I just couldn't work for the PT clinic for a year, which was something that we both came down to a mutual connection. But I think going back to kind of some of your original question, because I'm kind of getting on a tangent, and if I can draw it back, some of the skills that led me into this transition, I would just say is, is being flexible and a willingness to adapt. So you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to adapt to the environment. I was made manager and then COVID hit. So, you know, talk about being willing to adapt. Here I am taking care of this clinic that's doing well. And then the pandemic comes in and sweeps in and you're like, how do I keep the lights on? How do we manage the staff and everything like that? So, you know, willingness to at least step up when times like that happen, you have to be able to make at least some decisions and, and know what are different options that we can explore. And then I think another thing is you just have to give yourself permission to fail. And with that, I mean, every time we fail, we're learning. So no one does it perfect. I've read countless leadership books. I've read countless business books. No one did it right the first time. So it was that they failed and they failed and they failed, yet they just kept going until they were able to finally gain that success and learn from their mistakes. And then finally, I think it, it comes down to understanding how to communicate and being transparent with your colleagues, with your staff, with your peers. Again, I, I respect my old employers um, very well. We still have a very good relationship. They were very transparent with me. I was very transparent with them. When it came time for that non-compete situation, it was kind of a little bit of something we both worked through, but through communication, we were able to make a, at least somewhat of a deal that worked out for both ends of the party. 
And I think that's great to note because I always get questions, especially from new grads. You know, I, I've talked about negotiation a lot recently and contracts recently, and I've spoken about non-competes and the, I got a non-compete when I first started my outpatient ortho job before I took my boards, even though it was part-time. And I remember staring at that piece of paper and I had my family friend who's a lawyer read it and they were just like, what in God's name? Like, at least the way this was worded was just like, okay, this one's a little like, you can't even relatively do something similar to this company and you're in Manhattan which is like you can't really like leave there's only so many miles in Manhattan but I'm curious what your opinion is on from the outside you know looking in now that this kind of put in the past I was always told non-competes don't really have like a standing obviously it depends on employer and depends on state and depends on like verbiage and stuff like that but also like never to actually sign one. And if the employer is putting like a pressure on you to sign it, that's kind of like a red flag and to turn the other way, even if the job offer may be a little on the good side. Yeah, that's a great question because obviously this is a conversation I've had quite a few people and I'll put it this way. The reason why some companies have not competed is because they got burned in the past. And I can totally see that, Yeah. especially as you take on more of a management role. You invest a lot of time and money on someone and then just for them to kind of go and take a lot of that and go elsewhere. That's why they can be created. The, the non-compete I signed and being in Michigan, Michigan, actually, it does stand up pretty well. So, you know, that's why I, I felt that it was more comfortable for me to at least have a conversation with the owners and figuring out how this could work out well. They were willing enough to let me join on in some fashion, and that's why I ended up doing home health, just because home health I could do part-time, get some cash flow for my, my family while I was working through the rest of it. For me, though, in the same sense, sometimes it's hard for me to, to see that as an option, just because the one thing we know is that PTs are so underutilized, and my mindset's always, we need more PTs. And I could honestly care less if I trained someone and they started up a clinic right next door because, hey, that means more people are getting care. This is my mindset as a PT. This isn't as a business owner. And that's where sometimes you can have that loss of coherence. When you're running a business, it's one thing. When you're providing healthcare, it's another thing. And when we mix those two things, that's where sometimes people might not feel the value. They might feel that incoherence. They might feel just kind of that lack of engagement because, you know, are we talking about a business or are we talking about PT? So, and it draws back to some of that scarcity versus abundance. And, you know, being in private practice, I'm of the argument that 100 people go see their primary care for low back pain and seven get referred to PT. Well, what happens to the other 93? How can we tap into that market? So, I mean, ideally, this, this is where I, I do wish that part of our profession can just at least come together in some cohesive manner instead of creating competition amongst each other and figure out how can we take the communities at need. But then when you're looking at a business aspect, they're competitors. So, you know, it's a challenging struggle as you as you do look into business ownership and you're looking at those different models that you're running. Now, I can tell you the model at Dynamic Movement and Recovery is very unique. So we kind of stay away from some of that hardcore private practice, direct access marketing um, aspect, just because we're so unique in the fact that we see complex patients. We're pretty much that if you've gone through PT three or four times, just at least send them to us so they can give us a try. You know, we're not getting people that are coming, you know, right from their doctor's office. They're usually been through the system. They usually trialed everything. They usually, maybe even some of them have gone to Mayo or, um, or Cleveland and they haven't gotten any answers. And then they finally say, well, go see these people. So <laughs> our marketing is a little bit different in that aspect too. But yeah, as far as that goes, I would say it's a conversation piece of understanding the why behind it. And I mean, if you're a new grad, 
and you're trying to sign a non-compete, to me as a staffed PT, it doesn't really make much sense. When you start talking about management and ownership, then it makes a little bit more sense because now you're actually gaining a lot more insightful information. Yeah, I think that's a valid point too. And it really kind of puts into perspective all the different job roles and responsibilities and what exactly it entails as well. And I think I want to go back to something that you said too, that you started talking a little bit about the model that you currently have. So everyone's always like, oh, should it be cash-based? Should it be insurance? Should it be one-on-one? How do I make money? How do I survive as a business? Like, you know, all the good juicy questions in this profession, you know, give us some insight into how it is run on the back end. Like we know what patients you get, but like, what's the actual like service model? Yeah. So when I was a manager for my old employer, I was obviously, that was all insurance based. They did have some cash pay opportunities, um, but that was pretty much insurance driven. We accepted certain insurances. We didn't accept other insurances based off of the contracts. I think in that grand scheme of things, it was important for a lot of individuals to understand their contracts. The, the general thing is, is that PTs don't make any money in the insurance-based world. And, and that's not true whatsoever. And for um, dynamic movement and recovery, so the clinic that I am now going to be managing, we operate with pretty much nearly every insurance. Our goal is to improve the accessibility of care, especially for those people that don't have the resources. So I mean the Medicaid, the United Healthcare's, the ones that no one else wants to see, the ones that cancel a lot, the ones that don't have transportation. We're pretty much like send them to us because that's what our model is, is we want to take care of them. But in the other essence is that we get a lot of work comp, we get a lot of auto, and then some people have barriers where they can only go through their insurance. We don't want that to be a barrier, so we actually do offer cash-based options. And our cash-based options are very reflective off of our price per visit. But when it comes to it, I mean, I would say Michigan, our insurance reimbursement isn't horrible. You know, I I think the national average is about $105 per visit per insurance. Um, When you break it down for us, we're right around there at the same time. And and we see people one-on-one for 40 minutes. Evals are a little bit more. So if you're a cash-based clinician and you're working, let's just say, making $150 an hour, well, $105 for 40 minutes added up throughout the day, it's not too far different. And, you know, even in some of those autos can be a little bit more. So it's, it's really not that much of a difference. What you're just looking at is the difference of the overhead cost. So who's doing the billing? How is that done? Who's doing the credentialing? Who's doing all the compliance work? Who's doing that? And when you're working with an insurance model, it's just that you have a lot more overhead. I could open up a solely cash-based business and see a lot less people and, and just love life. But for me, that's where the struggle comes in. Then I'm not tapping into this market that, you know, a lot of these patients that are marginalized and lose the opportunity. So then I lose my why again of why I actually started this. Now, I have nothing against people that do that and people love it. And I have a lot of great friends that are in that realm or are doing mobile therapy and love in that realm. And we need that. Like I said, I mean, this goes back to the abundance. We need people in all essences. We need people in every different you know, perspective. We need people willing to do the cash-based, but we also need people willing to do the insurance-based world just to kind of go through with that. But I just know that it, it comes down to how well can you manage your business with what you have? And even though our model is set up so much against us because we do see the people that have high cancellation rates, we do see the people that just the insurances don't reimburse more. You got to be able to figure out how can we improve the value for these people in order to get them in, in order to complete their plan of errors. I think going from a traditional, I don't want to say PT meal, but their general thing is let's getting as many people as we can. And a lot of people will fall off and, you know, some people will cancel, but that's okay because we double booked. Well, 
we don't want to do that. So how do we just really improve the value for the people that we're seeing and make sure that we find different opportunities and just create those different opportunities for them, which with the world of telehealth has been great. If you need to cancel, let's check in via telehealth. Um, okay, you're having transportation issues. We have a whole transportation system set up for you. So this is where, again, you can go back to that willingness to adapt. It's not impossible. It's challenging. But you just got to explore those opportunities to, to make it meaningful for your patients, to make it meaningful for your company, so that you're completing those plan of care, so that you're getting those visits in, and, and then everything else can just take care of itself. I think this is so refreshing, at least for me to listen to. So I'm sure someone else is going to feel the same way, because so often, especially with the way that social media has grown in the profession over the past, I would say, five years even, there's been such a huge narrative push on you have to leave PC mills, you have to leave insurance-based care, it has to be cash pay, it has to be one-on-one. -on -one. But then the same people that are spewing that often are the same people spewing about higher level athletes or you know the weekend warriors and things like that. And everyone is forgetting about chronic pain patients. They're forgetting about, like you said, marginalized communities, the ones who have notoriously like not shown up, they have transportation issues. And they're the ones who, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think they're the population that needs us the most because of the amount of failed treatments that they may have already gone through. And, you know, I have had students or other people, you know, reach out when I've talked about certain things and they're like, you need to remember this population. And I'm like, I, I mean, I'm not a business guru, period, let alone a business guru of PT, but I, I understand you're right. And so to hear someone who's in this space and is being successful at it in a, in a very unique way, I think is a great reminder for people to hear that it's possible to still help these patients and not A, burn out in a high volume clinic and B, still make a decent living for yourself while so it benefits both parties. Yeah, I forgot a pretty important part to uh, just aside with that. And it ties back to the reason why there's three companies because really they're supportive of each other. The, the missions are very similar where we're just trying to improve the healthcare climate and taking care of these marginalized populations. And is it my passion to sell this patented uh, body weight unloading system? No, I mean, it's, it's a cool technology. It's something that's needed. I mean, you're talking to like, a lot of clinics are looking at Alter-G, a lot of clinics are looking at maybe the solo step of robotics, but they can't afford them. So we just created a more affordable system to be installed in smaller clinics. But in the same sense, I mean, that's kind of a bigger profit-making company. So if we can sell more units of that, it supplements and supports other initiatives. And this is, again, where you're looking at that adapting to the environment is that sometimes when you're willing to take insurance or, or whatnot, what else can you create as part of your business? And some other options we're exploring with our own company itself is just community education courses and different classes. And I mean, again, this is tapping into that cash-based system of how do we offer different personal training or wellness once the therapies are completed? How can we, you know, take care of this person in this format, but then provide a social support group in another format? So there's just so many opportunities available, at least in the PT world, where it kind of makes me laugh now when people are like, don't do PT, you're so restricted. But Really, ideally, I mean, our scope of practice, at least in Michigan, is so wide and what you can do and create, there's not a lot of limitations and restrictions for, for how you want to operate your business. There is a point that I, I'm hoping I can touch on, hopefully, burnout, 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 burnout. So I think it's one of those things that a lot of people feel burnout is due to high productivity. And I would make an argument for that. I would say that burnout is due to more of a lack of engagement, support, and appreciation from higher up. 
and maybe this is just me personally. I've been in a high-paced clinic where I didn't burn out because of the caseload. I burned out because I lost that feeling of why. I burned out because I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. So I feel that, you know, as a manager, when and when I'm looking at different individuals underneath me, I'm trying to figure out what makes them tick. What's your why? How can we show you value? And when you're able to do that as a manager and put people in a position they want, then you just see that they excel. So I know it's it's one of those things like people get very scared of productivity and all that stuff. And in some areas it works and some other areas it doesn't. Like if we had productivity standards compared to the national average with our population, we would burn out of clinicians hardcore. But when you're dealing with other populations and when you're dealing with other different, you know, kind of models, then it might be a little bit more feasible as long as it's something that you're feeling like you want to do. I think that's the issue too. Everyone is often fixated on a number like, oh, I'm seeing 25 patients a day, you know, exaggerating here, hopefully for most people. Um, but if you're seeing 25 patients a day and you don't have time for yourself, you're not able to visit your passions or keep yourself mentally, physically able. And then if you're bringing that into the clinic, your patients are going to feel it. Your environment is going to feel it. It's kind of all going to spill over eventually. And I think you'll become more robotic in a sense. And like you said, lose sight of your why and your vision and all that other stuff. And that's what's going to really break you. And when you don't have the supportive environment or you don't have the people that are backing you and, and making sure that you're staying on that mark, it's going to dissipate very quickly. And I feel like that's why a lot of people like end up just giving up in the profession in a way because they're just like, oh, I just can't do it anymore. Like they lose their sight, they lose their why, and they associate those feelings with like PT in general. Definitely, definitely. And I think I just remember as a new grad coming out, you're you're eager to conquer the world, like I said earlier. And then if you get put in that environment pretty quickly, it, it can drain you. And then you you lose that sight, you, you lose that reason of why you started. Um, I know I got complacent in my position for the longest time, and I was kind of thinking, is this what I want to do? Do I want to quit PT altogether? I kind of went through that little slump, but that's where it's just awesome, where there's so many different opportunities. So if there's not one that, that is near your area, then, then feel free to explore and start your own. I mean, I think we're now living in the world post-COVID where the great resignation, the great you know ability to to give yourself permission to fail, to give yourself a chance to explore. And, you know, the biggest thing I learned is that when you take a bigger risk, you're more willing to at least try to accomplish that. And I've learned that myself. I took a big risk leaving this very secure, high-paying management job. Now I'm not really getting paid anything, and I have to do home health and see how I have to navigate my life. But I'm a lot more fulfilled at the end of the day when I'm going home because of something that's meaningful to me. So it's not all about the money. And I mean, again, if you're in PT just for the business and it is about the money, then then great, we need you. But not everyone's like that, so. Yeah, exactly. And I think it often gets lost in translation, that kind of concept, because, again, I just always go back to, because of the social media space that I'm in, I always go back to what I see on social media and then all the students that are panicking in my messages because of what they see. And then they're like, what do, you, what do you mean this person's leaving their job? What, what do you mean they're quitting PT? What do you mean that, that you know, that, so this is the average salary? What do you mean these are the job offers that are out there? And, and then it, it creates like this pressure and they're trying to get it right the first time. But I think you need to ha also have this like understanding of your first job is not your last job. It doesn't have to be at least. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. And it's okay to switch jobs. It's okay to switch settings. It's okay to 
change your passions or, you know, you have maybe you work in an outpatient orthopedic clinic that's insurance based and you're like, I actually have this one patient or this one patient population that I love to work with. Like now I'm going to go zoom into that a little bit more and work somewhere else that maybe works only with that patient population. Like you never know kind of where your passions is going to take you. And I think when you're inundated with so much information on the internet or just as a new grad in general, it's very hard to keep track of that. Yeah. And I can only imagine. So, you know, social media is a different beast altogether. And I mean, most of us can recognize social media, make sure the world is divided by good and evil and you're either good or evil based on what you believe. But it's, it's like the world's a lot more complex than that. So, you know, I think um, even in my exploration, I never saw myself doing home health. And I guess what? I mean, I, I figured out home health isn't for me, but I did enjoy my time and I learned a lot. So that's cool because we have so many different settings to explore. And I think this is sometimes where you almost, I'm, I'm not a big fan of saying go find your echo chamber, but you do need to find that group that's like-minded because if you're constantly looking at things that are just negativity and things that are bringing you down, you need some sort of positivity and you might need to find that group that's more uplifting and willing to challenge you that you're willing to challenge so that you guys can continue to work forward. And I mean, I think partially that's a, the big reason why I feel a little bit more fulfilled is because we do have a team, our research team and our clinical team is a lot more like-minded in that sense that we challenge each other and we, we look for ways to, how can we move forward despite all of these barriers? How can we move forward to tackle these systemic issues in our, in our society? And then how can we just break them down from a community standpoint? When you look at the global issues and you look at how big they are, it can be very daunting. But then when you just break it down to that patient level, you just break it down to your system level, or I should say your community or your local level, then they become a little bit less daunting and it's a good way for you to provide action. Yeah, absolutely. Do yeah. you have any tips for students when they're trying to navigate these spaces where they're either A, trying to figure out their passion or, you know, at least maybe their first job, maybe their second job, or they're unsure if they want to change settings or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to doing a lot of self-reflection. It's something that I didn't do well of before. I was very type A, very analytical, down to the books. It worked well for a high-paced clinic because I could just go through everything. But it, it's important for us to take time out of our day and really reflect. And I already said, you know, don't think of what you want to be. Think of who you want to be. This is another thing I've really learned is that, you know, the feeling of the value that you have is a feeling. It's not a word. And when people try to use words to describe it, it can kind of muddy it. But if you've ever been married, if you ever see, you know, your first child, if you ever are just, you know, having a really good time, people will call it that flow state. That's the value. And when you get that feeling, then you know you're right. So if you're going home and you haven't had that feeling in a long time, maybe it's time to explore where else can I get this feeling? And I mean, I can say because I got married and I had kids and I know some people haven't had that, but I, I can tell you that it's a lot different when you're in that environment that you know you exceed in. Is, is knowing that it's that feeling there, so. I don't have kids and I'm not married, but I can add to that. I had the feeling of this when I left my last job, had some time off because I was waiting for HR to, it worked out where HR was just taking their sweet time, but it was also a second peak of COVID, but I had a couple of months off and I was like, oh, once I got back into it, I was like, okay, no, this is where I'm meant to be. I needed to be here. I just needed to change my environment, change management, change whatever, my routine. And then I got it back. And I think it's just important for people to recognize that like it comes and goes definitely, but you want it to come more than it goes, if that makes sense. And it, it's 
it goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier with like making sure you keep your why. And I always tell students that too, because I know I lost my why when I was even just a PT student because of all the stress we get when we're in school. But if you're able to kind of revisit it, especially if once you go on your clinical rotations and stuff, I think it's huge. And then you're like, okay, wait, no, this is where I'm meant to be. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> any final thoughts for just students in general? It could be any topics that we've spoken about or just anything you wanted to add? I, I know we covered a lot and I apologize. I get on tangents and no, um, not at all. I get high on my soapbox. I tend to talk really <laughs> fast. So I'm sorry if everyone, if anyone needs to slow this down for whatever reason, you know, you say it's early. I, I scheduled this early because this is my productive time. If we were talking at 8 PM, I wouldn't have anything to say. So the only thing is that, you know, I know uh, negotiations is a big topic that you cover. I am a big fan of anyone negotiating anything. When someone wants you for a position, the moment you negotiate, it's not going to be like, never mind, we're going to take that offer away. So always negotiate your offers, but two, have a reason why you're negotiating. I know there's a lot of messages that your license gets paid the same and it doesn't matter, but I'll tell you what, being a new grad versus being an experienced clinician, there's a huge learning curve there. A learning curve with understanding how do I manage these patient cancels, a learning curve with how do I kind of navigate some of this billing and documentation, a lot of different training involved, at least in the private practice I know. So if you can come in and you can at least um, ensure to your employer that I understand that, you know, there's certain, you know, deficits here, here, and here, but these are ways that I'm willing to make up or show you that I'm, I'm worth it. So by having that understanding, and if you can think a little bit like a business owner and understand that they're just looking at their bottom line, then that will be able to improve your chances of how you can at least make a better um, effort of getting that salary. So that'd be the one thing I would say for salary negotiation. And then again, I'll just reiterate one more time, just focus on who you want to be, not what you want to be. I think those are solid points. And, and I want to touch on the negotiation one briefly too, because I think people often just look at the number, but again, that also comes with like lack of experience and you don't really know what it is and why you're asking for it. So you really need to make sure that you have a little bit of an understanding from the business owner side of what it is mm -hmm. you're looking for and what it is that you're offering, like why you should get that salary just because Definitely. just because inflation is high as much as I'd love to say you deserve that salary but it's not always the reason yes definitely so cool where can people find you if they have any questions or want to reach out I'm mostly on Facebook and Instagram so it's Ham Fowler DPT they're kind of both professional pages that I just put a lot of PT information on anyone can message me on there I do have a LinkedIn that I barely ever check so if you guys like LinkedIn if you just annoy me enough on there I might be willing to connect but mostly Facebook, uh, Instagram, and yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks, Steph. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.